This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Juliana. We're going to talk about A Fine and Private Place by Peter S. Beagle, first published in 1960. And uh, before we started, you were uh, asking the question, is it true uh, that Peter Beagle yeah. was 19, was it, you said? Yeah, I think I, I, I read that somewhere, so is it true? I think it's probably true. It's pretty, it seems like I did the math and it looks like it came out when he was 21. Um, okay. I would guess that it takes, a, if we're we're looking at it as we normally do, about a year or so for for movies or whatever to, you know, uh, books to come out after they're yeah. bought and that sort of thing. But even if it was when he was 21 and not 19, like Mary Shelley with her first, you know, big book, her first yeah. novel... Um, I think it's still pretty impressive. Oh, impressive. Yeah. It is. And, and 19 is a better number in a couple of ways. Another reason it's better is um, one of the main characters, uh, Mr. Rebeck, he's been in the graveyard for 19 years. Exactly. Right? Maybe a coincidence. I don't know. I, I think he's pretty self-conscious and self-aware of what he's doing in this. Yeah, I think so too. It's, um, it has so much, so many things going on. Yeah, and the th- yet it's it's. Um, I mean, I uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, we were supposed to do this show last year, right? Um, yeah, in November. In, in November, wow, um, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but I've read this book three times because of that, um, and. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking, you know, the first time I read it, I was thinking, this is pretty uh, lightweight material, you know, like it doesn't have a lot of depth. Yes. Um, not that it's a bad book at all. It's it's very um, good, I think. It's just that there's there's uh, this, not a lot of subtext, I guess. It's not deep. Yeah, it's it's, it's lot, lots of things quite, it feels like they're quite on the nose. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, some some points I thought it was a bit a bit long. Yeah, I, I I've seen that criticism bit, too. Yeah. Yeah, but some some passages or some like something I'm thinking like, okay, right? What do I need to know this now for? <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. Yeah. I, I I think it's um it is it's novel length uh, for a subject that is more novella. Uh, especially given how few characters there are, there's a lot of, you know, just following some character around for a while and getting inside their head and hanging out with them and seeing the way they see the world. Uh, you know, like a raven here or a, a lady doing her her shopping in an afternoon, you know. Right. But on the other hand, um, as a time capsule for when it is, 1960-ish, uh, Late late 1950s, maybe 1960. It's pretty darn interesting just seeing how New York was. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I thought that was really interesting. It's a it's a kind of a a wonderful place, uh, even if the characters don't seem to think so. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, with all the shops and the culture and. Yeah, you get to learn quite a bit about society in New York and the way that people think about things. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a good uh, social study kind of thing. It is very, is very nice. It's a very nice time capsule for that for that period. If you if you want to see what something was like, you know, in Victorian London, there's lots of books for that. Um, sure. But I don't read a lot of mainstream fiction that would allow me to just look at what regular regular life was like anywhere it's mostly science fiction and werewolves for me so um having a a very sort of light touch fantasy uh here uh, was pretty effective um as an experience i think that is true i think it was and um i just i've just seen that um here on the on the Wikipedia page, it says the the first published book had 272 pages, and I listened to it as an audiobook, mm-hmm. and it felt it it felt a lot longer than just 272 pages. Mm. Yeah, it's like eight hours or something, uh, maybe yeah. six six seven hours, eight hours, something like that. Yeah, it's true. But also the um in this in this audiobook um version. Peter Spiegel read it himself. Yeah, it helps a lot, I think. I really enjoyed I his so reading. Too. I think so, too. In this case, gen- sometimes, you, you know, when authors read their stuff themselves, they're not really good, well-trained in use of uh, their voice and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think he has, he has such a very calm voice. Yep. You know, he reads quite slow and... Uh, I think it was very pleasant to listen to. Yeah, he, he really does not have the voice of the women as distinct from the the males or anything. You know, the raven sounds exactly like, you know, yes, <laughs> every sure. other character. However, uh, in voice, however, the 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 um, he knows where and what emotion each of these voices has, and he doesn't ever play against it. He always keeps keeps it exactly as you know we would if we were reading it to ourselves alone oh yes i think i think it's pretty effective i agree a lot of authors probably shouldn't read their books um especially when there's so many talented narrators who could do more more and better work with it but this is a case where i think it worked out pretty well i think so too um, although I, I had to kind of get into his voice because I remember there was, I didn't actually listen back to it. I should have probably done that, but, um, that he has this certain, this certain sounds or the way that he pronounces things are mm-hmm. uh, quite special. It yeah. is certainly not just a random voice. No. It is a very distinct voice. So, um, yeah, no, he's got it. Ex- you know, he sounds exactly like the people he's he's writing about there yes it's it's kind of amazing if we think of him as a uh teenager writing it right if we think of him as a teenager writing it doesn't feel like it was written by a teenager it feels like it i was thinking it's like this is feels like a guy in his 60s you know totally it feels super old yeah i mean he's very knowing about is thinking about death you know like really, I I really I had no clue that he was nineteen when he wrote this. When I Seems read crazy. this or listened to, 
seems yeah. really crazy that that somebody that young could be so uh, I don't know, just philosophical about death, right? And you know how to live, which is really what it's more about than it is uh, death, right? Oh yeah, it's pretty it's amazing. Very, it, it, but just to have going into uh, thinking himself into an old guy mm-hmm. who lived on a cemetery for 19 years. I mean, how do you get to this? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. There, there are a few hints along the way. Um, one of the things I suggested we do is uh, talk about uh, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, right. I don't know if you've gone and looked at that, but I... Um, I did. Oh, great. I loved it. Good. I got the um, the the illustrated version. Oh yes, it's it's um it's an uh, an amazing poem, maybe one of my favorites, um, if not my favorite. Um, and one of the things I discovered relatively recently, and I haven't talked about on the podcast ever. I, I think I tweeted it once, but nobody cared. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> tell you, um, is my theory as to what's going on in. Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and uh, how it relates to this story and um, a few other, there's a few other things though before we get to The Raven so you know the title of this uh, novel comes from a poem not by Poe okay um, so there's uh, Andrew Marvel I think is his name I'm not I'm not super familiar with Marvel but I've heard parts of this poem before um, and it's, uh, yeah, it is by Andrew Marble. Um, oh, yeah, to his coin mistress. Right. They call it a metaphysical poem. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a fun word. Um, <laughs> basically, this is, uh, uh, it's a poem that's an argument as to why um, a girl should have sex with or at least, you know, start to kiss an, on a guy. <laughs> yeah. And he's saying essentially that um that you have to because we're running out of time and, right and that's the whole thesis of the poem and the line uh, uh a fine and private place um rhymes with the sort of the comeuppance in the poem um yeah the grave's a fine and private place but none i think do there embrace okay <laughs> and of course that that's Refuted by this novel, right? Yeah. In a I'm couple just looking of ways. at this poem. Yeah. So why don't I read it and then uh, we yeah. can think about how it connects? Because I, I like reading poems aloud. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when they rhyme. And this one has my favorite kind of rhyme, which are forced rhymes, where you're forced to change the pronunciation of the word in order to make it fit. To make it rhyme. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It makes me laugh. All right. Sweet. To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marble. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our love, long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldest rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood. And you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love w- should grow vaster than empires and more slow. A hundred years 
should go to praise thine eyes on thy forehead's gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part. And the last age should show your heart, for lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at a lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song, then worms shall, sh worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor to turn to dust and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in this slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, we will make him run. Sweet. Sweet. It's it's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's when got so it? many fine turns of phrase, but it's it's basically, come on, baby. Come on, let's, <laughs> let's just do it. That long preserved virginity. It's not <laughs> worth anything. Right. <laughs> it was published in 1681. Wow. Mm -hmm. And he was dead yeah, when it was published. Pretty, so it so <laughs> makes me wonder if he, he, uh, he got what he wanted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was apparently a tutor to a, a, a rich man's daughter. I don't know if that had right. to do with it. Oh well, uh, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know who it's who it's for. Well, if it was if it was published uh, post mortem, maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> so yeah, depends exactly. on how he died, right? Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It's pretty terrific, and you know, there's enough of the um, lines in there that I recognize. I'm sure there's a lot that I don't. There's a story from the Twilight Zone um, called World Enough in Time. And that's right in the first line. Yeah. Uh, and it, this is what writers do, right? Is one thing we know about writers is they read a lot of books, at least when they were young. Of course. And so they they find these poetical lines and they just... And they get make, inspired. They do. I, I, think, I think that, you know, it, it's incontrovertible really that uh at least peter s beagle read those two lines if not the whole poem i think he read the poem because there's so must many, have. yeah there's so many bits in like he talks about the the amorous birds of prey yeah and he talks about the um iron gates of life come on it's that's so it's pretty clear yeah yeah but uh, notice he doesn't go with the you know humorous sexy take Yes. Those with a sort of more philosophical, um, we're old, older people here. Yeah. We're, we don't even have bodies. So right. the love is very... Um, Metaphorically. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's chaste. It's a kind of chaste love. Yes. Right? Yeah. And also the way it's between 
Jonathan and and um, what's her name, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Clapper. Yeah, it is way more about just finding another human being to be with. Yep. Like what's he what's he what's he really doing in that graveyard, right, Mr. Rebeck? For yeah. For- He's been there. He he was there all during World War Two. <laughs> like, how can you not been discovered? What's this? I mean, how can this be? <laughs> it's it's a it's a pretty um, it's pretty interesting. Like just backstory and seeing you know, it, what we know of his life there. Right. Is, you know, it's just basically reading books and. Uh, staying there and waiting for the bird to deliver him some food and yeah, yeah, uh, washing his clothes in the bath bathroom sink at night. It's it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of like I, yeah, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I'm thinking like, is the ray? This is everything there. Is it actually there, or is he just having it all in his head? It's a, it's, a, it's not very well supported in the novel that that right? he's like he's just a crazy homeless man. Yeah, that but, was my impression. <laughs> well, it's not well supported by any evidence in the novel, but it no. it certainly fits the facts a lot better than all the facts that are given in the novel. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, if we found out somebody was living in the graveyard and they were, uh, you know, washing their clothes in the sink at the uh, <laughs> of the public washroom there. But I had no, I the would, impression that he was like, I mean, if you live in a, in a cemetery, you are probably going to be dirty and smelly. Yeah. I never had the impression that he was dirty and smelly. No. I had the impression he, he, he was well groomed for some reason. <laughs> I don't a little know. disheveled, maybe. But yeah. Uh, yeah, not, but, not, not, um, yeah, like, did he, did he, I don't think it's mentioned if how often he shaves or anything like that, right? It sounds like he did this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean he has a lot of time to to groom himself, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like an hour per day, I'm going to <laughs> do all yeah. this. Yeah. I mean you have to fill the time somehow. And, and what are we what are we to make of Mrs. Clapper um, falling in love with this this guy who's obviously um, you know not the greatest catch ever? Well, I'm not sure. Is she falling in love with him? I'm kind of thinking like. Her life with her husband was really tricky between the two of them. They were so different. Yeah. And suddenly she finds someone who's really, she's, I really think she's like a very adventurous person. And, um, and then she finds someone who's kind of tickles this kind of adventure sense in her. But I don't really think she falls in love. Uh, it's it's a not it's not a deep romantic love as much as uh, one of the things that even uh, Rebek says is you know I'm not your husband right, you re- right. that that stuff about the rain jacket yeah. Um, yeah she's trying to sort of get a replacement for her husband exactly um, and this guy oh she can mold him into that shape and he's like he's not having it yeah. Um, so, but on the other hand, her description of her husband, all, you know, from her point of view, um, is that he was the adventurous one, right? He was the one who was always saying, let's go to this museum. Let's go to that museum. Yeah. And she was more of a stay at home, but she, she's, she's a lot, she's actually more desperate, uh, than Rebecca is in a certain sense because 
um, she's the one who's so fearful of being one of those ladies right. who sits down and just ages and yeah. And you know the scene where she goes into the store. Oh yeah, and talks and, to the ladies outside and stuff. Well, but uh, when she's in the store and there's this uh, the kid who who's the daughter of the woman she doesn't like to talk to and the store owner uh, Stillman yeah. is that the name of the, it was a, it was something like Stillman yeah it's the name of the family and she can't she keeps asking questions and she keeps wanting to make herself shut up but she can't yeah. She says, um, you know, so when are you getting married to the 20 year old daughter? (laughs) And she's, you know, the daughter has an answer like polite, but not uh, responsive because who are you to ask me that question? Yeah. (laughs) Sort of thing. And she can't, she keeps at it. She just can't stop saying these things like she's, she's trapped. Oh yeah. She's trapped in her role. Yeah. She's trapped in her role. She's trapped in her. In her, her I think it's thinking. Just, yeah, and also in the way that she has put herself um, in the place in in society mm-hmm. um, that you can totally see also in in her, her in her apartment when the, the, the description of what she's doing and the way that she's spending her day and the cooking planning planning it out and right yeah, yeah. and I think she's this is also part of the um, description of the um, the social um, environment of the 60s because yeah. she is a, a widow in the 60s. I mean, what are the conventions of society for a widow in the 60s? You're yeah, not getting well, another boyfriend or something. <laughs> you, well, the, what's that? What's the lady she doesn't like to talk to? She says, so you, uh, when are you going to Florida? Right. When are you going on a big trip? Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's supposed that's her role. That's that's what society wants her to do. Just now enjoy right. her widow life kind of. And she's given other uh, opportunities like she could she could do like the nice lady who's always talking about how she's going to be buried. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. her other option. Yeah. Right. So she's kind of this trapped in a in a in another sense the way that mm-hmm. um Mr. Ribic is um trapped in his own Yeah. He, I mean he puts himself in his own prison. Yeah. Kind of. It's it's very interesting like his explanation for how he got there. Yeah. It's not complete. There's something missing, right? So he says that he uh, started acting as a witch doctor, basically, yeah. as at his pharmacy yeah. selling love potions. And yeah. the story of that first, the first guy, um, it was really nice. I mean, it was a, it would could have been a story on its own with the this guy who was probably a boxer. His face was all scarred up, yeah. and this girl who would sometimes come in with him, and he says, come on, you can make me a, a love potion. Yeah. And he eventually gives in and says, okay, I'm going to make you a love potion, but it can't force her to love you. It'll just make her receptive. Yeah. Right. But from the, from the description of the relationship, we n- pretty much know that she's already receptive. Oh, so right. when it works, yeah. right. When the love potion works, yeah. Um, he gets this reputation and, and then, is ruined by it, right? Yes. The business goes to pot. Of course. And I think this is kind of showing his character, and I think he is, is quite of a weak character. He can't say, no, I won't do that. 
he then just gives in and plays along. And that playing along yeah. kind of uh, got everything worse. He couldn't get out of it. It's it's so mysterious, though. Like, he loses his business, right? And then he ends up working at a very low-level job where I, I was, he was cleaning or something. And he gets to sleep there. And then he goes by his old location. And he sees that commercial businesses have taken over from him, um, except their promises are all scientific promises, right? Your skin will be healthier looking and your teeth will be whiter or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And then he just wanders into the graveyard. like, And then he just doesn't come out. And that's it, right? It's like, yeah. is that the whole story? I really? would think that, you know, his girlfriend died and he can't get over her or something, right? But that's not there. No, I think he kind of just... This is a, some sort of character who just, he just gave up. The world was yeah. just too, too difficult for him to deny everything. Yeah. And it, 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 it's like, it is, like he's it's, fleeing, isn't it? Yeah. He's fleeing from the world and from yeah. taking responsibility and taking on making choices. And, uh, he's kind of just saying, okay, everything out there can go on. I will just stay in here and just, just, I don't know. He's just in a time loop kind of thing. Yeah, no, he's frozen in time. Absolutely, right. right? Exactly. And it, and he's literally doing nothing, right? Just just being in the graveyard. Yeah. And and that's uh, it's 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 again like I was saying it's 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 kind of, it's crazy, but it's kind of attractive, you know, in the sense that I, I when I was younger, I I really understood what people, you know. A lot of people have the plan that they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of money and then they're gonna yeah. go retire. Yeah. Right? And they're gonna lie on the beach. And I, I mean, I've been on vacation. I've lay on beaches. I've gone swimming and <laughs> snorkeling and all that stuff. But that's not you, that's not a life, right? That's that's something, but it's not a life. Not really. Sounds boring. It's it's frozen, right? Like you're yeah. you're um you want to do more of the same. You want to do what you did yesterday. Yeah, um, and no matter what that is, um, if it's the same as yesterday and the day before, that's not a life. That's no. something, uh, and yet it's still attractive, right? So he's he's frozen in that sense, and so when the when the freedom comes, when he's finally broken out of his icy tomb, right, and goes yeah. out into the yeah. world at the end of the book, yeah, it's yeah. very um. It's it's satisfying in a certain sense, uh, but I it also made me think about like other stories like um, like this. So I'm trying to remember which one it is. There's a few where there's a guy whose girlfriend is dead, and he goes into the underworld and and gets her out, right? Or tries to get her out. So well, um, it's like Orpheus and Aridica. Yeah, yeah, that's one. And there's one with Beatrice, and uh, this uh, is um, uh, Milton, not Milton. Jeez, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> um, there's another one with uh, a, a character who, a male who goes into the underworld, and he, I mean, Odysseus almost does this as well in the Odyssey. But there's a lot of consulting with the dead and right. talking to ghosts and trying to get back that which is lost, right? Yes. Death is the barrier. Um, and that's what we've got in a certain sense of what 
what graveyards are for. When Mrs. Clapper goes to the graveyard, yeah, she's goes to, back to visit her husband. Yes, but she finds a guy who's trapped in ice in a certain sense. Yeah, there, and in the course of the story, and in the, in seeing the two ghosts fall in love with each other and uh, having their revelations um, come out, he is unfrozen and i i don't know like i don't know exactly what's gonna happen is is mrs clapper gonna stay in the same house and mr uh Rebic just moves in with her i don't think that's exactly what's gonna happen oh it felt like that Richie, she, she will just fill the house again with another person well she she wants she kind of wants that but i think they have to find a new place don't they because I mean, she has this massive big place, and it, I think in my head it's more like a kind of uh, just they just living together and helping each other out. You know, she she has someone to take care of again, and he yeah, has, she, she's definitely gonna. But but she they can't do it there if like it is Mr. Rebecca gonna wear her husband's old clothes? No, he won't. In that living room that she she said that that's. She, you know, we see a lot from her perspective where she talks about how the living room was his room, right? Yeah. That it belonged to him, and whenever she goes by that room, it it reminds like I think they have to find a new apartment. Right. And you know, get rid of a lot. Like she, when she first hands in that raincoat, he says, uh, she says, uh, "This is from the goodwill." Yeah. But it's not. It's not from the goodwill. It's from her. Right. Right. And and. Whether she's deceiving him on purpose or it's just a way of speaking, um, he he knows that that's not what it is, right? It's right. not just like she's trying to not just charity. She's trying to fill her life with with what she had exactly before, which is her dead husband. She was always comparing Rebek to her dead husband, right? Yeah. And he was always saying, "I'm not him," right? Yeah, but I've been still, to museums. I like museums, but not like your husband did. Yeah, but I always felt that she, she wasn't really, she wasn't really loving his hus- her husband. It always felt like there was. Yeah, well, it's sort of formal, right? It was a formal kind of yeah. love. It wasn't like uh, no, certainly not. It was more like okay, we get married, <laughs> and that's just how the conventions of society work. And you have your thing, I have my thing, kind of. Yeah, but her for, her love was very um, like uh, this is his domain and this is my domain and yes. we were married and and remember when she talks to the boss right about a, what kind of house quote unquote house her husband will live in in the graveyard yeah, um, yeah. what kind of tomb oh, the yeah. boss says he di- he didn't want he didn't anything want, big didn't and she no. she knows better yeah she right? makes him a big funeral and she makes him a big house to live in he didn't she's want playing it. a role right, right. she's playing yeah. a role and and she can't get out of it but that's the good thing about Rebek is he he won't he's, let her play those totally games out of the game yeah and yet he gets you know it's kind of like the damages that she has and the damages that uh, he has he has and she has combined together to help each other. Right. This is right. how it felt. They were kind of having one part. They were kind of missing an important person helping them out. 
Yeah. And then they yeah. found that in each other. Yeah. And a lot of things are subverted. So another thing that's subverted is, remember the, uh, the, uh, is the raven have a name? I can't remember. Um, I, think I don't think it does. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, Elijah? Elijah, well, Elijah, yeah, that would make sense. Elijah is the one who, in the Bible, is fed by ra- ravens, so um, it's Oh, no, no, it's that's... He's maintained by. I don't. Th- I don't think. Yeah. I think it's no, no, just it's the raven. It, yeah, I think it's just the raven as well. I don't think any of the, like. There's a squirrel that talks, and he talks about how the squirrel talks about oh, having yeah. his wife, his wife and kids. Yes. Which I thought was hilarious. It's he's got a. It's not just a woman he lives with. It's a wife. It's, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which implies the whole social structure and society and laws for. Yeah. For <laughs> this bird. I I actually I was thinking there was not enough raven in this book. I would have wished for more raven. Yeah. You know, at the beginning... It, it's interesting. Because it, it it's almost not a science fiction or fantasy book at all, right? It, With how little... It's very uh, fantasy. Well, uh, it's, it's you know, low fantasy in the sense of not much magic, right? It, there's a couple of rules, and the rules are obeyed. Yeah. But we don't really even see much of them. True. Uh, right? It's the what how ghosts act, and by the way, animals can talk. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. That's that's the rules. Yeah. So there's, but there's in no, general, uh, like when stuff. it started off in the book, I thought very much it was mainly about the Raven and Rebek, and mm-hmm. then the ghosts came in and took over quite a bit of the part that I didn't mm-hmm. quite like so much, and I wish there was more Raven interaction mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. He, he only gets like a chapter, really. Yeah, really. that was. He, and he's kind of, but that's what I'm saying. He, he subverts, he subverts, uh, like, he, he'll, he'll, you know, why is he delivering the food for 20 years, right? Yeah. It's because that's what ravens do. Yeah. <laughs> it's I not like he's happy about it. it. It's not like he owes a duty. It's just, that's what ravens yeah. do, you know? And I really love the way that he had this dry sarcasm going yeah. on. <laughs> it was, I really enjoyed that. That was quite yeah. fun. It goes against uh, a lot of the other characters. The other the other character that's kind of like that, um, and I think for a couple of reasons, is the uh, Night Watchman. Oh yeah, he was fun. Uh, what's it? What's his name? Um, um he was called. Jeez, uh, it's not coming to me. But it was. Uh, it was a. He has a name that also sounds like it means something. Yeah. And uh, the way he acts when when Rebek gets caught, right? Yeah. Uh, and he says, and then "Stay right there." And then they right, and then he goes, "Oh, I'm gonna get arrested now. And should I run? No, they'll hunt me down." And then he comes back and he says, "Now take this." And he gives him some alcohol. <laughs> yeah. What is it? I forgot a name. But he, where was he from? He were they were singing in a different language. Uh, yeah, I I don't Spanish? know. If he's, when they're singing in Spanish. Yeah, it was Spanish. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of singing in this book. It's surprising. Yeah, and you know because the the author read it himself, he was able to then actually sing it. Exactly how it's supposed to be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, so that this this character of the um, Night Watchman, yeah, uh, with the truck, um, it strikes me uh, that. It is another reflection of the raven in a certain sense. So, uh, have you heard of this concept in English? We call it a psychopomp. No, what's that? 
Okay, so a psychopomp is a being that takes people from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the the person on the river on the yeah, the, so Charon or Charon. Yeah. Right? He he's the ferryman and you yeah. put a penny in somebody's penny mouth to, or yes, for safe passage and stuff. Right, to pay to pay him for the trip. Yeah. This um, is where they put the, the the coins on the eyes or something, isn't it? Right, yeah, yeah. or in the sometimes it's in the eyes, sometimes it's in the mouth. Yeah. Right, so that it's going to go with them, right? Yes. And there's lots of examples of these uh, beings. So Anubis from ancient Greece. Yeah. And Charon from uh, uh, from Greek uh, mythology. And, of course, um, Pluto's... Uh, one of Pluto's moons is named Charon, right? Charon. Yeah. Um, because yeah. Pluto's the god of the underworld. So it's it's a it's a concept that's deep in pretty much every r- religion. Um, and he's playing that role. Literally in this story, he he's He takes, takes the death to to the places. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, and and when he meets this man who's alive in the place of the dead at night, yeah. right? The time when everybody's supposed to be laying down and sleeping and being acting in a uh, manner like they're dead. Yes. Um, he doesn't, you know, call the police like he's supposed to. He doesn't, uh, you know, he says, you're a terrible guard. He says, I'm a terrible guard. Hmm. Right? <laughs> he yes. doesn't, like, um, act like a guard. He, he acts like a... Uh, it's funny. There's a passenger on the on the the barge to the underworld right. that who doesn't belong. He's stuck. He can't get off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what and he does? He just takes him and sings with him. Like that's that. right. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's almost like he's he's not he's neither here nor there. He's not dead. He's not alive. He can see the dead. Yeah. Like the psychopomp can, right? And 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 uh, the uh, driver can see the dead. Right. The uh, night watchman can see the dead, just as as uh, the bird can, and right. All of these um, this close, idea close of being in, people can see, yeah, yeah, in their and in Mrs. their sort of halfway can't. state. <laughs> yeah, she can't. That's yeah. right. And so there's there's this idea there that um, it's sort of working below the surface. This is what I'm thinking. It's not. In the book, but it's why the book works so well. I think we're sort of thinking about these things because of the way it's presented in sort of this lazy, slow manner. Right. It's a bit like going on a river. Mm-hmm. On the on the slow Hades. Yeah, and it's a sort of a slow boat to to Hades, not yeah. not to hell, but to you know the land of the dead where people fade away. Right. There's a line in there, uh, given by the, the first ghost we meet, saying... Michael. Uh, Michael. Saying, uh, I don't want your Nepenthe. And Nepenthe is the the drink that you take to forget your life. Right? Uh, he wants to hold on to his memories. Right? right. Yeah. And Rebecca says, you can't. They're just going to all fade away. And he says, no, I'm going to hold on to them. Right. And, I remember. And they start to fade, right? Until... Uh, his girlfriend shows up. <laughs> yes. And ghosts fall in love, right? Uh, sort of in 
in contradiction to that Marvel poem, right? <laughs> None there. <laughs> what is it? You mean the ghost uh, like Laura and Michael fall in love, not the real, right. not the real wife who also right. comes along. Right. No, but none. I think they do embrace. Right. The the ghosts fall in love. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. I Michael think the ghosts and Laura. fall more in love than Mrs. Clapper and Ribbick. <laughs> yeah, they're more like um, they're they're more like friends than anything else. Yes, definitely. But he, if he's gonna leave the graveyard and be homeless, he's gotta, he's gotta find some place, something to do. So, it's funny. Um, the last line is about another bird, um, and it's told, uh, it's ref- referring back to a story about the, about the seagull that's lost in Iowa, always looking for uh, the sea. Yeah. It got lost in a storm or somehow, and it it was in Iowa. And every time it saw water, like a, a river or a lake or a pond, it would fly down expecting it to be the ocean. Yes. And and then when Rebek is outside of the gates and he's bumping along in the truck or whatever. Oh, no, they're walking. They're yeah, walking, they're walking after the truck. Yeah. And he looks up in the sky and he sees a bird and he wonders if it's the crow. Right. Or if it's the seagull. Yeah. And it's a it's a very nice ending because it leaves us wondering too, is that seagull still flying around? Is, what what is the metaphor there? Yeah, is it is it still searching? Yeah. Yeah, I think this book is very at, heavy with these kind of um, metaphors and uh, things underlying. Mm-hmm. Like with the raven, I tried finding. I mean, the raven itself is kind of like a metaphor, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. I want to talk about that. So um, it's going to take a while. I hope you have time. <laughs> <laughs> I have time. Oh, good, good. coming back for another hour or so. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So The Raven, um, uh, I think one way to read The Raven is just to listen to the sound of it. And it sounds beautiful because it, it is beautifully composed. It's 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 beautiful sound. But I think after that, which I, I've read it for years and years and years, so I... I mostly read it just as a sound and you get the sense of, you know, that sound over and over again of ever more, never more, that sort of thing. Yeah. And all, all the, uh, the lines of silk and satin, certain rustling, right? The assonance and the consonants all working together to yeah, the language give you is beautiful. It's just gorgeous. But uh, on underneath it all, there's a story of madness in here and there's a story. There's a there's one line that's always bothered bothered me and I and I figured it out. I think I know exactly what's going on. And then I looked even harder and I think I know even more what's going on and like wow, I don't think anybody knows about this. So I want to very excited to tell you my theory and why how I back it up. Yeah, okay. tell me which one is it? Okay, well, uh, why don't we go through the whole poem? I know it's really long, but I do want to I do want to show you what I mean. I'll point to the things as we go. Yeah, let's do it. Go through them and compare it to uh, what we see in in a fine and private place, because I think he must I, I assume Beagle must have been very familiar with the Raven as well, even if he was 19 when he wrote it. Yeah. Um, if he's familiar with Marvel, he's probably familiar with Poe. Yes. And I, given that it's got. Raven in the title and yeah, such. I really, yeah, I really think he he at least has heard it 
even if it was yeah, in school or whatever. That's right. I think so. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to, if you don't mind, unless, would you like to read it? Uh, well, I'm not sure if I can pronounce all the words correctly. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll do it. I, I, I enjoy doing it if you don't mind. No, do it, um, please. Okay. So. Once upon a midnight jury, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. So the first lines that I would point to compared to this story is, um, he's got books. Right? As Mr. Revick does. Yeah. Many a quaint and curious volume. Yeah. Uh, right? He gets whatever books the bird brings him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And of course, she's not nameless forevermore here because he says her name very shortly thereafter. Yeah. And then he hears an echo of her name very shortly thereafter as nevermore. Right. Um, I want to point out here um, the the word. This is uh, unrelated to my thesis, but it's it's just beautiful. Uh, and each separate dying ember rot, rot, W-R-O-U-G-H-T, yeah. as a homophone for R-O-T, yeah. right? Um, but it means worked, it's ghost oh. upon the floor. Okay, so, it sounds like rotten, right? Yeah, as in, where's his girlfriend? Yeah. She's in the grave, rotting, right? Yeah. But he says, rot, it's ghost upon the floor. So the fire is down low, and it's leaving uh, a ghost of flame or shadow or whatever on the floor. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, eagerly, I wish the morrow. Morrow sounds a little bit like marrow. Yeah, isn't it like I don't think... bone marrow? <laughs> yeah, but it literally means the day, right? Oh. So this is night. Ah, okay. Only... So he's wishing for the next day because the night yeah, is Yeah, because... At yeah. night, the the ghosts come to him, right? Right. Vainly, I sought to borrow mm. from my books surcease of sorrow. That's so beautiful. Mm. Bar, I bought, I sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, an end to sorrow. How did he wish to end his sorrow by reading, right? Right. Sorrow. And if it just, he's just distracting morning. himself, isn't he? Yep. He's trying to get away he from the thoughts that he's having. Yeah. That's right. All right. My screen just went to sleep. Here we go. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor's entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. That it is, and nothing more." So one of the things that here in a reading through it a number of times, he wants to still the beating of his heart, not slow. Yeah, so he wants wants to die. die. He wants to die in a certain sense, right? Okay. Presently. And he's in a state, you know, in the the night he can't sleep, so he's reading, and then he's kind of, it sounds like he's kind of 
napping away and then in this kind of slumber, not quite yep. awake. Half, that's right, dreaming yeah. state. Right, exactly. Yeah. Presently, my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no, long, no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. I want to point out that it's December, He's it's at night, and he, earlier in the story... Uh, at the very first line, in fact, it says midnight, right? Once upon a midnight dreary. Yeah. While I pondered weak and leery. Notice it's not once. It's not like last night or this night. It's once, like once upon a time. Yeah. This is a very interesting for what happens later. Uh, so um, I think we should think about me, what it means. It reminds me a bit of Dickens. Yep. Right? You know, when, yep. when the, all the ghosts come and it's a bit like mm -hmm. that, isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, one of the things that we uh, know about Poe, we don't, we know a lot about Poe, and we also don't know a lot about Poe. But one of the things we know about Poe is he was, uh, he corresponded with Dickens. Yeah. And when Dickens came to the U.S., uh, it was uh, in correspondence with uh, Poe, and Poe was solving the mystery of a of a book that was still being written. Okay. Um, in he published his theory at one point. So they're they're definitely tied together. Yeah. They both are big on ghosts as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, he's just opened wide the door, right? Darkness there and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering. One of my friends, um, Wayne June, he did a book collection of Poe short stories, and that's what he called it, Into That Darkness Peering. Mm. Isn't that a great line? Yeah. Deep into that darkness peering. Long I stood there. Wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. What's he dreaming about? Well, of Wants course. his girlfriend to come alive again, maybe? Yeah, or, or like of hell and the worst that yeah. can happen. Yeah, he's fearful and he's also uh, hopeful, right? Yeah. Wondering, also fearing. Also, he again, like in a fine and private place, we haven't actually talked about it yet, but mm -hmm. his, he kind of wants to kill himself. It's yeah. clear. But on the other hand, this is like really suicide is something to fear as well because yeah, yeah. it's not it's not accepted. And right. one of the characters did kill himself, right? Exactly. And so here he's kind of maybe he's opening the door and seeing what's behind a suicide, you know? Yep. Maybe yep. that. He's definitely it's 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 very teasing in this poem. Yeah. And it ties it ties it in. It's they're tied together. I'm pretty sure. All right. I'm gonna keep going. Um. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word Lenore. Now notice, it doesn't say, I whispered the word Lenore, but no. he's the only one there, so he's the one who's saying it. Yeah. Lenore? He's asking, was it you who came back from the grave here? Right. And uh, there's a terrific um, short story by Guy de Montpassant that has the same premise, except that when the guy opens the door... She is there, and she's was buried prematurely, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> she came back, and she's. It's a terrific short story about a girl who, who's uh, the daughter, um, is buried. Um, she's had some disease that you know put her into a coma, and when she comes back to the door, it's been raining, and she's, 
she's looks like one of those Japanese or Korean ghosts, you know. Yeah, but she's alive. Right. <laughs> and um, she's got a bloody hand because the, the guy who buried her clipped off her finger to get at the ring. Ooh. <laughs> it's a real creepy ghost story. Very so this creepy. Is, it's a wonderful scene where, you know, there's this the house knock 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 in the middle of the night. It's the it's your own kid come back from the dead. Missing a finger. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um this I whispered and the echo murmured back the word Lenore exclamation point. Merely this and nothing more. Notice one goes out as a question, the other one comes back as an exclamation point. Yeah. Well, that's quite funny because in my ebook uh, version, it's actually both with exclamation marks. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again, I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Notice that it's the word chamber rather than into my house. Yeah. This is very interesting to me. I want to keep going with it. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me sure then what thereat is. What a beautiful rhyme. <laughs> and then this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment and this mystery explore. He's doing that repetition he's doing right over and over and over again. Yeah. Door, 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 Lenore, Lenore, door, explore, door. explore. <laughs> Tis the wind and nothing more. So, a, a lattice. I usually have to explain this to my students. Is, is that you know when you've got it's like a screen, right? So you've got like a a layer of lines going in one direction, and then uh, a ninety degrees, another layer of lines going in the opposite direction. So my microphone has like a lattice over it to cover, ah, cover it, right? Ah, okay. So this is it's like a fence. It's, it's kind of like a shade or like a a screen, like. You know, back in the old days, windows would have a very expensive. They have glass, right? Yeah. And and they have panes, and then they have shutters, and they also have lattices. So you have curtain. Notice all the layers for the windows here. We've yeah. got shutters on the outside of a building, right? Yeah. Then you've got the glass. Yeah. Then you've got the the lattice, which could be just the panes and all the. Or it could be like a literally a shade that you put out to keep bugs from right, yeah, coming through the, and letting l some light in, yeah. right? And then you have curtains to do blackout so that you can, I don't know, keep the sun go to sleep during the day or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So all those layers, and and of course his um his uh, curtains are purple, which is important. Oh, interesting. <laughs> colors, it's royal color, right? right. So oh, I just want to point uh, point out that it's a chamber and he's got all these layers between him and, and the outside world. Yeah. Okay. Where are we? Uh, open here. Uh, yes. Open here. I flung the shutter when, Oh no, that's, that's a couple lines down. Let's see back into the chamber turning all my soul within me burning. That's an interesting word. Why is his soul burning? Soon again, I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is someone at my window lattice. Let me see what they're at is. And in this mystery explore, let my heart be still a moment. And this mystery explore, tis the wind and nothing more. Does it Open say, here, I... Sorry. Sorry? Does it say for yeah? you that he's saying, surely, said I, surely that is someone? For me, it says that is something. Yeah, it's always changed. Somebody's changed it here or there. It, it's... um. 
I'm reading the one from Poetry Foundation. There are a number of different readings. Yeah, I'm um, the one from um, what is it? The Gutenberg could be Wiki Source. Oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Yeah. They're pretty much all the same. It, 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 you can you can allow any sort of slight variation as long as um, the the main words are there. I think we're pretty good. Um, so tis the wind and nothing more. He says, "Open here, I flung the shutter." Right. So again, a shutter is uh, on the outside of the building, right? So he's opening the the door to look out this is also what you do with your eyes your your eyelids are shutters yes right yeah so it's almost like he he he's trying to wake up he opened wide his windows to his yeah uh, open his eyes yeah that's right open here i flung the shutter then with many a flirt and flutter this flirt is kind of funny word right but i guess um in there stepped a stately raven capital r of the saintly days of yore, and that's like of a long time ago when things were good. Yeah. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with my mind of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. So the things I like to point out here are um, that he's perched upon a bust of Pallas, right? And Pallas is another word for Athena. Okay. And so when you see this depicted in, like, The Simpsons does, does a version or, you know, many people drawn, you've, you've, you've got an illustrated version, right? You've seen? Um, they show this a bust, which is the statue just from the shoulders up. Yeah. Of Athena. Uh, usually she has uh, a... A helmet on, yeah, which is yeah. Uh, tilted up, and then on top of that is where the raven sits. Yes, right. I have it um, right in front of me. Now, why does he use palace? Uh, well, I th- rather than Athena, I think there's a couple of reasons. One makes us think of uh, P A L A C E, right? Palace. The palace, as yeah. in, right? As in a place for a king. Ro- purple being the royal color, that's cool. But on top of that, there's also Palace is called Athena, or Athena is called Palace because there were two gods who had the same role. Yeah. One was named Palace and one was named Athena. And in one version of the story, Palace is killed and eaten by Athena. And Athena takes on Palace's name as a, and, uh, you know, defeater of Palace, right? right? Yeah. Um, so. She becomes Pallas Athena, as in, you know, like, I, I conquer of the Rhineland or whatever it is, right? It's some sort of uh, description. Um, and so we get that a distance away from Athena. Yeah. Which, who's so well known as the goddess of wisdom, right? So this, where does the bird perch? Above wisdom, which is kind of an interesting place to be. What yeah. does that mean? Right? So we continue on. Um, then this is where it starts to get really interesting. Then this ebony bird beguiling, ebony being the color of black wood, right? Yeah. Beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave stern decorum of its countenance it wore. And then he says this incredibly strange line that nobody ever talks about. And it's the one I want to point to. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven. And then he describes it as, ghastly grim and ancient raven ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore 
tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore and then quoth the raven evermore so this is actually where my theory is is centered okay, okay. what does shorn and shaven mean to you i was immediately thinking about samson samson cutting his hair right right yeah Right. Okay. But then I was thinking, um, like, it's, uh, he's talking to the raven, yeah. And you can't really shave a raven. You can't shave a raven because, first of all, they they're they're feathers, not right. You, know, you could pluck a raven. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he says, "Thy crest." Now, on a bird, the crest is what you wear on the top of your head, right? Or uh, if it's a helmet, uh, it's the feathers that stick out the top of your helmet. If it's a piece of clothing it's the symbol right okay. on your shirt but but on a bird it's the feathers on the top of the head yes and he says though thy crest be shorn which means cut short yeah and shaven thou i said art sure no craven so okay he's saying that this raven has no hair or oh, sorry fur no not fur not fur nor hair no feathers on its head well that's not a raven that's a different bird okay. and it's a entirely fitting much more with the theme here in a certain sense um it's a condor aka a buzzard also mentioned in the novel it's a carrion eater uh-huh. you know you know what i'm talking about yeah a vulture. Yeah. They don't have feathers on their heads. Right. And the reason they don't have feathers on their heads is because they eat from the inside of an animal. They stick their they, whole head and neck yeah. into the body of a of a animal that they're eating, yeah. like a ghoul, right? Yeah. And they they would get covered in uh, blood and guts that they would not be able to clean off because they clean with their heads right yeah so they naturally do not have feathers there so when he mistakes this bird so it's for a raven uh, he's doing he's doing something very strange showing that he's got something wrong with him right yeah his perception of it as a raven is odd Okay. I just, I never know, I never noticed how, like, I didn't notice, I noticed it. I just never, like, why doesn't it, why doesn't anybody comment on this? Yeah. I was thinking that he was more talking about how the raven is sitting on top of uh, Athena's palace's uh, head thing, you know, talking. Well, he her. says, thy crest, though, your crest. Yeah. And it, her crest, though, it's funny, is is the helmet that Athena's wearing should have a crest on it, too. Yeah. Right? It, but when it's depicted, it's always shown as a raven, right? And it is a raven in a certain sense. That's the name of the poem. He didn't, he didn't accidentally pick the word raven yeah. and just forget what kind of bird it was. That's the whole point of the poem. Right. But, but uh, when you make a picture, when you make a drawing, you have to choose, right? You cannot, you cannot just draw both a vulture and a raven. Right. But I, in a poem, we can have it both ways. I actually think here what he's saying that he's not that he's not like the bird is is the the vulture, but it it should be because he, he's saying um it he, the crest be shorn and shaven. 
Like it's not he's not saying that mm. the bird has I it. I see what you're saying. But he he should because he compares it to the vulture. You know what I mean? Well, I I can see that as a possible reading. However, he says though thy crest be is another word for is, right? Shorn and shaven thou you art which is are right? Sure, no craven. Uh craven would be like um like evil or lustful or something like that. Yeah. Um, and ghastly, grim, an ancient raven. Well, why is it an ancient raven? He, he'd already described it as black, right? Which vultures are black. Yeah. Um, although they have a tuft of white on the top of their uh, shoulders, right? Yeah. Just the base of their neck. And if you've seen a vulture's, you know, head, they don't look young, <laughs> right? Because they look... Their skin is sort like, of yeah, wrinkly. Yeah, wrinkly and <laughs> scary looking, right? So he's having it both ways. It is both a raven and, uh, to me, a vulture. Yeah. Um, and it just fits in a certain sense. Uh, if you say raven, it it just gives you a certain sense of of um, you're not seeing what it really is, and. If you think of it as what it is, then it, this is a much scarier story. And there, I think that that's supported by a few things, like the stilling of his heart. But I want to keep going with the – there's a fire theme in here as well that's right. really interesting. Yeah. Much I marveled, he says, much I marveled this ungainly fowl. Ungainly would be another word for ungraceful. Okay. Right? Which, again, is fits with the vulture. Yeah. You hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door. Bird or beast upon the sculptured bust of his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. <laughs> again, this is a talking raven, right? Right. Fitting our, our story. Well, but then the ravens. I think oh, it's yeah. talking raven in the sense of that. I think the sound that they are making could be interpreted as like he was doing something and then he heard nevermore. But I think it was more like this quaking kind of. I don't know what raven. Nevermore. You know. Well, this, uh, re yeah, crows are capable of talking, um, but they, and he addresses that in I, I think the next stanza. He addresses it saying, oh, it's just, you know, they're like parrots. They can just say words yeah. that they've heard before, right? It's, it's actually quite funny because I've just been to my parents' place and they live kind of close mm -hmm. to the woods. And every year they have ravens uh, nesting there. And mm -hmm. they often have two two little little ravens. And they are quite big already, but they still mm -hmm. ask their mothers for food so they sit in <laughs> in the trees and they can't really sing it's really just like croaking and wow. they are kind of making noises that could sound like nevermore but ask me, <laughs> ask me later about my crow friend i've got a friend who's a crow right <laughs> okay uh let's see um where are we but the raven sitting lonely on the on the placid bust spoke only that one word uh, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, 
on the morrow he will leave me. He's not talking to the bird. He's talking to himself, right? Yeah. He will leave me as opposed to she will leave me yeah. as my hopes have flown before. Capital H hopes, right? Yeah. Um, meaning he's turning, he's reifying them. Then the bird said, nevermore. Now, this is really cool. One of the ways of interpreting this poem is that every time he makes a statement, the bird contradicts him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in this case, he's saying, uh, he's going to leave me and uh, I won't see him because all my friends have flown before. Yeah. And And the bird says, I'll never leave you. Right. And of course, that echoes the very last line of the poem as well, which is terrific. Um, so if we take the raven to always be telling the truth, um, I think this is really interesting. Startled at the stillness broken by so, reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is only stock and store. Right. It only learned it and memorized it yeah. rather than it understands. Caught from some unhappy master whom un unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore or of never never more um and then so some other previous person complained all the time right yeah but then the raven still beguiling all my fact and fancy into smiling straight i wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, again, gaunt meaning thin, yeah, right, grim, <laughs> ravens are black, does that make them grim? I, I would say a vulture's a lot grimmer than a, right, ungainly, again, ungraceful, ghastly like a ghost, gaunt, yeah. ominous bird of yore, Mint in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes, there again fire, right? Yeah. Now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining with my head at ease reclining. He's, he's sitting with his head laying back on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, glowed o'er, over. But the velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating, or she shall press. Ah, oh, nevermore. She's never going to sit in this chair with me again. Yeah. And in one of the great um, illustrations by, uh, uh, who's the, he's, um, the French. there's a, uh, Gustave Doré. Yeah. Have you seen those ones? Yeah, they are. Terrific. To this one, so I just have to, uh, yeah. There's a, a, a What's so nice about the Gustave Doré is he he finds these lines and sort of inhabits the world surrounded by Lenores. There's angels and Lenores hiding everywhere in his pictures. Yeah. Also in the one that you just read, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight drawing over, she shall press Anne of Amour. That mm -hmm. image has kind of like a, a ray of light going in. Oh, yes. Light is important. Yeah. In this. There's a there's a, a whole fire and light thing going on here. Then methought the air grew denser. Now, this is really interesting for another theory I've got here going. Perfumed by an unseen sensor. Sensor's the the I don't know, it's a basket made of metal attached to a chain that they use in churches to oh, put smoke or incense into a church, you know? Yes. Like 
the the scent of what does it have in the in the churches myrrh yeah myrrh or yeah something like that burning burning you know and giving a smoke yeah if, then if me you thought the into, air grew dense go into a church that has this you kind of get mm-hmm. a bit high yeah <laughs> swung by seraphim those are uh adult angels yes whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor tinkled sounds of their feet is tinkling this is very interesting wretch i cried thy god hath lent thee by these angels he hath sent thee he's talking to himself right respite respite and nepenthe as mentioned in our novel from thy memories of lenore quaff oh quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost lenore so he's saying god has sent you uh these angels to uh make you forget everything right right he says quaff oh quaff quaff is drink okay drink this kind of nepenthe but he's actually breathing it rather than drinking it right because it's uh it's perfect sent- yeah um quaff the raven never more now here i interpret that as he's never going to forget lenore yeah even if he wishes to right he's all the uh, raven's always subverting right yeah prophet said i Thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent, as in the devil, or whether tempest tossed, uh, sent here by a storm, here ashore, desolate yet and all undaunted on this desert land enchanted. Desert land, interesting. This sounds very much on, like the, the Tempest by Shakespeare. Yeah, it's, uh, well, again, it's very, um, it's all about what isn't happening, right? That <laughs> That's a great play for... A whole bunch of magic makes people see things that are wrong. Yeah, right? exactly. And ghosts and little creatures. Yeah. Desolate yet and daunted, all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. So, Balm in Gilead, this is like basically, is there medicine in heaven or is there um, is there skin soothing stuff in paradise? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the skin soothing stuff is important for another theory I'm going to show you that's about fire. Yeah, I just wanted to say that reminds very much of something to put on your skin after a fire. Yeah. Yep. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by the heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if when within the distant Aden, again, another word for heaven, okay. if shall if shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, again, he's, he's, he's lying, he's saying he's never going to say her name again, he keeps saying it, yeah. clasp a rare and radiant maiden, radiant glowing right from the yeah. angels named lenore quoth the raven nevermore you'll never hug her again yeah uh fitting with the marvel poem right uh but be that word our sign of parting bird or fiend i shrieked up starting he's mad at the bird now yeah get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token of the lie thy soul hath spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take my form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore he said get out of my house yeah the bird says i never leave will. me leave me alone i want to just 
drown in sorrow. <laughs> right. And then this is where it's really cool. Final stanza. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting. Remember he said once upon a midnight dreary? Mm. Or once upon, right? Um, it, it's still there. How long have they been there? Once is a long time ago, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door, and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight lamplight or him streaming throws his shadow on the floor how can the shadow it must come from of a lamp him. throw from behind him when the lamp was behind the main character hmm. uh, i can explain it <laughs> in my theory uh, and the lamplight over him streaming throws his shadow on the floor and my soul from out thy sh that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore so that last line he says and my soul sh from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. This is very mysterious as well. His soul cannot be lifted out from the shadow that the bird is casting upon him. Yeah. Okay, so there's tons and tons of ways of reading this poem, and I think you're supposed to em embrace all of them, right? Well, one of them, I think, is that he's burned the he's burned his house down. Oh. And he's a ghost. Oh. And that's why the flames keep getting mentioned and are reflected in the eyes of the raven. And the flames are coming from behind. They're on the walls now. That's why he needs the bomb. He's on fire. Yeah. Right? Ah, he's, okay. he's he's sat too close to the fire. He we get it right from the beginning. Yeah, right? he falls the, asleep, and then the fire, the, the lamp catches fire, and the curtains. Over many a quaint and curious volume, mm -hmm. right? And when as each separate dying ember casts its ghost, rots its ghost upon the floor. Yeah, that could be that it's kind of like shadows are not cast by fire. It's the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. but. Um, if the sparks from the fire go onto the floor or the carpet or the books you've got in front of it, um, and you're sitting there sleeping, and then suddenly you say, oh, and uh, angels came in with an unseen sensor mm -hmm. and filled the air with a a, a, a bomb, no, not a bomb, a, uh, <laughs> a perfume that will make you forget everything. Yeah. One way of interpreting that is that smoke, and he's on, you know, he's dying of smoke inhalation. Right. And he's hallucinating right. everything. And leave no black plume as a token. Right. Uh, it, it's very interesting. And, and thinking about like, what what is this world, right? Like he he's in a room, and there's a storm outside. He's just in a room. It's not a house. There's no mention of like another room. Mm. It's just he goes to the window. He goes to the door and that's it. Yeah. Right? There's no other parts to this. And that makes me think of Mr. Rebek's house. Right. Yeah. It's just a chamber. Not There's no bathroom. Out. There's yeah. no anything and he, else. Right. He lives kind of on the doorsteps. Yeah. And, you know, he keeps his, his books in there. Yeah. But he doesn't, you know, when the storm comes and he's just hiding there and there's a tapping at the window, like it, it's it's obviously not a retelling. Uh, the novel's not a retelling of this, but 
it seems to me that it's it's kind of a a response in that um this is like a man without uh Lenore. Yeah. Right? His Lenore was just sort of the way he saw the world or something. Yeah. Yeah. And when the Raven comes, um, the uh, the message is not nevermore. It's like, hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. That's interesting. I'm also just looking at the Wikipedia page of the cultural mm-hmm. depiction of ravens because mm-hmm. they are everywhere in all cultures. They are. And in Greek mythology, it says ravens are associated with Apollo, the god of prophecy. They mm-hmm. are said to be a symbol of good luck and were the gods' messengers into the mortal world. According to the mythology, mythological narration, Apollo sent a white raven or crow in some virgin to spy on his lover, Coronis. Mm. When the raven brought, brought back the news that Coronis has been unfaithful to him, Apollo scorched the raven in his fury, turning the animal's feathers black. That's why all ravens are black today. Right. That's ravens quite- are... Yeah, they're important for um, native culture around here as well. They're... Um, Kind of the creator god in a certain sense. Yeah. And it's funny how all um, cultures have ravens being some sort of mythology, some meaning to them. Mm-hmm. You know, in England, they have the Tower of London, the ravens of the Tower of London. Yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I have. I, I, are, is that mentioned in this book? I'm trying to remember. There, there was a story about the, the two ravens, the names of the last two ravens in the Tower of London when when um, I think it was during World War Two that the their what's the names? Mabel oh, and Grip. <laughs> yeah, Mabel and Grip. That's in some it's in some novel I've read. I don't think that's mentioned in here, is it? No, I don't think so. But it is quite heavy. I mean the meaning of it, how you can find it. Like it's here in Hindu and South Asia. Uh, mm-hmm. natives of North American Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, the raven in these in- indigenous people's mythology is the creator of the world, but it mm-hmm. is also considered a trickster god. Yes. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're all over, um, and they're, they're generally considered tricksters, right? Yeah. And the um, ravens of my parents, you know, when you leave mm-hmm. the, the table... Uh, un, unattended and you have like breakfast stuff out there, they get down mm-hmm. and take the bread rolls or butter mm-hmm. or whatever that's in, on the table and they take it and take it away. And like you yep. have all kinds of ravens and they steal together like nuts and uh, bread rolls and then they soak them in water places to eat them and stuff. It, they're really yep. clever, clever animals. They are, they're incredibly intelligent. Yeah. Um, one of the things that this is true for crows as well, and they're closely related, um, is that they actually talk, uh, to each other, uh, not with much of a grammar, but, um, one of the experiments they did, uh, that was very interesting is they would have, um, people walking through a park. Yeah. And they would have them wear masks. And when a person's walking through the park wearing a mask that and then they did something like threw a rock at a raven or something or a crow mm. like that, um, the crow would take note of this. And the next time that person walked through the park with a mask on, they will be attacked. Um, they No, they wouldn't be attacked. They'd be 
the message would be sent across the park. Hey, the That's asshole's coming. Yeah. Asshole's coming. Yeah. Right. And the opposite is true too. If there's a guy who, uh, like, you know, spreads seeds or something, throws seeds, um, and w- he's wearing a, a mask, they would say, you know, Hey, we got a good one. Right. Yeah. They, they share they information. Share information. Yeah. And they will like, yeah, they'll poop on people who, uh, who try and, um, you know, do mean things to them. Yeah. And especially if they have, uh, young ravens around, the mm-hmm. mothers will just attack anyone yeah. who comes close. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite impressive. It's, uh, I was telling you, I have a friend. Yeah. It's a, ra- not a raven, it's a crow. I call it a friend, but you know we don't talk much. I mean, I talk, but the <laughs> crowd doesn't say much. You should talk a... more closely. <laughs> well, the 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 only reason I'm even able to identify this particular crow from time to time is because it has a, defor- a deformity, um, and so I like, oh, hey, buddy, you right? again, like, every yeah. T- yeah, and so like when I've got you know a muffin or whatever, and I'm in that area, yeah. I I'm always sure to give my friends some food. You never know um, who he's taking it to. <laughs> uh, well, I can <laughs> see him, see him or her. I, mean, I don't know if it's. Again, this is the thing with uh, ravens. You know, they're uh, virtually identical in color to each other, right? Yeah. They're not super distinct. And males and females are virtually identical. It's basically size is basic, and you know, there's a couple other tiny little things you can look at but you have to sort of yeah do it for a while to figure it out but this bird um it doesn't necessarily trust me or anything but i since i can recognize it and i'm likely to give it food it's more friendly than the other ones right and i it's just funny that like when i'm in that neighborhood i often see it i say hey there buddy I just wave over to this bird. Um, and uh, that's not true. Like most animals that have that um, that coloration, like zebras, why do zebras all have the same coloration? Yeah. It's very interesting. It's not, uh, it's not really for – it is camouflage, but it's not the kind of camouflage you normally think of. Yeah. It's actually the opposite. So uh, apparently the reason zebras have that coloration – is when you're a lion and you see a pride of or a herd of zebras, right? Yeah. Um, they look into this herd and they need to make a plan. Like yeah. that's the they weak need to pick one. one, and it's difficult to pick one if everyone looks the same. And when everybody looks the same, and, yeah. and when they move, they all sort of blend into each other because they're a whole bunch of white and black lines, yeah. right? So it saves them from, as a group, from having any particular attention drawn to it. It's right. almost like um, if you're if you're in a room full of black people and you're the only white person there, you um, <laughs> you're the only one that can really be seen yeah. amongst the uh, uh, if you know if there's somebody standing on stage and they need to pick somebody, you're very easily pickable, of right? Course. Um, if it, and it, it works no matter what it is, when you stand out, you're the one that stands out. Crows are black. They're designed not to be seen, right? Yeah. And yet their behavior makes us, and ravens' behavior makes us pick them out as a... Sp- as individuals. Specific. 
Yeah, but as a specific kind of animal to be picked out as a, you know, a, a clever, naughty animal, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's- and they're survivors, right? They can, you know, passenger pigeon, pigeons are extinct, but ravens are going to be with us forever, right? Yeah. They are very easy to adapt to new challenges as well. They're clever and they know how we work. And, yeah. And can fit in. And they're somehow. scavengers, aren't they? Yep, they'll eat anything, exactly. and and they'll find ways to get into things yeah, to eat a, those it's anything. It's just a picture on the Wikipedia page saying, a raven in a cemetery, because they are scavengers, ravens have been associated with death. Yep. Right. Absolutely. I'm looking at that same picture. Yeah. It's interesting, because this is why I thought that in a fine and private place, the raven it did just get kind of a mention and not much more. I would have liked to spend more time with this with this relationship there. Yeah, I think it's it's it is given short shrift. I mean, the, it, the squirrel, right? Yeah. The squirrel like, has a whole family and life. <laughs> we don't know what's going on with this raven, other than it's having some some sort of crisis in the same way that that uh, Rebek had, yeah. right? It refuses to fly. So I'm not flying anymore. Mm. <laughs> Why? And and then when we find out his the Raven's backstory, when he he says he says when he was a baby and he found out that he can never land be a hummingbird or land like a hummingbird, mm. he cried like a baby. <laughs> yeah, <it's> sweet. <laughs> not like a chick. Yeah. Right? He cried like a baby. <laughs> there's something there's there's some way uh, that this is deficient yeah. in giving us a, a, I mean, the fact that the squirrel has a, uh, has a wife, right? Not like a girlfriend, right? That it means they have a formal structure exactly like ours. And so I think if he had spent any more time on it, he would have had to spend a lot more time figuring all that out. Yeah, I it, guess. It, it, I mean, the fact that the raven reads the newspaper. Um, how does it know how to read newspapers? Yeah, yeah, true. You can learn talking, maybe, but re- learning to read—that's pretty impressive. That is true. <laughs> it, it, it's um, it's a gentle fantasy. Yeah, it is. But I also like the, as I said before, the the whole way that we can depict the um, uh, the social structures. Uh, on many levels, especially, you know, with the two ghosts, with um, Michael and Laura, and the mm-hmm. whole thing about the suicide. And was it a suicide or was it a murder by the wife of Michael? Right. You know, it's kind of like kind of getting all the edges of uh, the what society um, respects, even if you're dead. Yeah, if you can, they literally move the body right out it, of the. I mean, out of the suicide is worse than potential murder. Yeah. So and um, yeah, that whole thing with the suicide and and then he gets moved across to the other part of the cemetery or out of it. I I didn't quite. Uh, yeah, into another cemetery. Yeah, and there's the gate, you know, that goes through the gate, and that is kind of right. the cutoff point. It is. <laughs> and he can't go. Rebek can't go through that gate, right? Yeah. He doesn't. He can't explain why. But once he came in, he can't leave. Yeah. Oh, well, he's uh, it's, his prison. It's, it's kind of obvious that you don't go through. The yeah, gate. but it's a prison of his own making, right? Of course, it's in his head. It, it, 
And, but it's the same thing that, that, uh, the, um, uh, Mrs. Clapper's having, right? She's, she's trying to avoid the prison of her own head, right? You know, where she says things yeah. she doesn't want to say and she doesn't want to sit down with the old ladies across the street. Yeah. Because that'll turn her into one of them. He's and she a, doesn't want to be one of she's them. She's more of like in a golden cage with the door open. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she finds, uh, she finds it's, it's, it's a satisfactory <laughs> book. <laughs> she comes, she finds somebody to, to go and sit with her in this cage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to happen there. I, I yeah. mean, Interesting. I, Mr. Rebecca is 53 or something. He said, I think something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and I get the sense that, uh, Mrs. Clapper is about that age, if not a little older. Yeah. She felt a little older. But it's hard to, I mean, she, she sort of, she talked that way. Yeah. But also it's really difficult to tell because of the different, uh, generational behavior kind of thing. I think she just behaves yeah. quite old. <laughs> One thing that's really absent is, uh, children, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of talk about kids. What, 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 where are their children? Did she have, did they have children? They didn't. Right? Yeah. And what, what, and the other couple, right? Michael, Michael and, and um, her, Lauren? Michael yeah. and his wife? Yeah. No, I don't think, no I children. don't think it was a healthy relationship there. <laughs> well, not if he, not if he thinks he killed, uh, she killed him. And not if he killed himself, obviously. Well, I not. think, yeah. yeah, I think that is also a bit of a what's what's in his head and what is reality. You know, it's the kind of thing yeah. that you think about Ribeck. Um, yeah. What's what's real and what's just in his head? Yeah. That uh, that was always a bit the question for me. There, the Night Watchman is the sanest of all of them, really. Yes, he's the <laughs> normal guy. And, and he's kind of an alcoholic, but other yeah, than that, he's um, well in a in a job like that. <laughs> I'm not saying he's rough around the edges. Where I think that I think that's what the bird says. I can spot him easily, right? Yes. Something like that. He has a soft, <laughs> I mean, soft kernel. Um, but then I was thinking, like, if Rebek um has all this in his head, why does he have two ghosts in his head that think about uh, murder and suicide and? these kind of things. So, mm. you know, where does this come from? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I don't think there's enough evidence. To, I mean, I want that to be an interpretation. If someone else wrote this book, I would totally expect them to go there. But he, there's so little evidence that he's actually nuts. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah I mean, weird thing. You, it, you it's he, a bit... He feels like a normal person. Yeah, I mean, because otherwise he's just pretty normal and when when like when the big worries that he has are like lying to her about losing a watch um that's not much of a you know it's not much of a tell yeah. towards True. any sort of insanity so I, I mean the raven the poem by poe has a lot more of uh you know he, this guy's suicidal this guy's insane this guy's is the is the is that a ghost outside his house knocking on his door? Is he hearing things? Is it all a dream? All of those things are much more interpretable there yeah. than I think in the fine and private place, which is, it's pretty straightforward. That's the thing is there's no real surface, anything below the surface other than the things we've talked about, right? The illusions yeah. and the, you know, thinking about, about how it is that the 
the story unfolds the way it does. Yeah. No, it's interesting. But I really like also the um the correlation that we did with the Raven by Poe mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and this book. And um I will also I will definitely check out the um the last Unicorn again. I love the movie. I've never read that. Um, how, how did you read the book? No, I've actually just watched the um the animation. The mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. And I I don't know much about it. I know that it there was some controversy with regard to him getting the rights or something. But uh, yeah, I, I uh, this is the only book by Peter S. Beagle I've ever read. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the last unicorn, it was, I, I'm, I mean, I've seen it as a, as a child, so it probably has lots of like child attachment to it, but, mm-hmm. uh, I loved it. I loved the whole, um, you, you're being the last one and you have to find others that are left and what's going on. And it was always just heartbreaking what was going on. So this is why I really want to go back and watch it again to open Are there it. thematic connections between the two? Huh? Are there th- thematic connections well, between this book and... playing a big role in uh, yeah. <laughs> in all of it. It's kind of... Uh, okay. Yeah. It's a different kind of dying and... Yeah, but I think the death theme is definitely there in both of them. I, I don't think he's written a ton of books, has he? I don't think so. Isn't that yeah. literally the only things I know of those? Oh, well, there, there's a few listed on his Wikipedia entry, but... Um, it says uh, um, Tamsin. In- yeah, 1999. In Keepers of Songs or something. Yeah. Seems to be a lot of novellas and stuff on there. The, the Innkeeper's Song, Two Hearts. Oh, that's The Last Unicorn, 1.5. <laughs> Interesting. Right. The Folk of the Air. Yeah, I'm looking at his ISFDB page, and it says there's one, two, three, four, five novels. Right. Which is, for novels, you know, he came out with one in 1960, and the next one's 1996. Hmm. Um, I guess The Last Unicorn is not a novel. It must be a short story or something. I'm guessing. As I say, I haven't read it. Oh, no, it says novel. That's weird. Okay. Yeah. But it's definitely his most famous one. And then there's one, it's called We Never Talk About My Brother. That also uh-huh. looks a bit like, you know, it has a... Sounds like it would be like this, right? Right. It does sound... What you don't talk about, what you can't talk about. Yeah. The Line Between is another one. So mm, Another liminal space. Yeah. So he does have something with death going on, I think. Yeah. He probably had somebody die in his family when he was younger. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I've been to funerals. Have you been to funerals? I've been to one. Yeah. Uh, the choir director, uh, my chi- when I was in uh, the the children's choir that I was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the closest of like a person I know that died. Oh, by the way, yeah. Luke's Luke's grandfather just just. I know. I right? I saw him tweet about yeah. that. Yeah. There's a was, picture. He was 94. Oh, he lived a long, full life, no doubt. Yeah, sure. So that kind of seems like not too bad then. I don't know. It's weird to say, but. Yeah, well, um, yeah, uh, they say death of a child. One, one of the things that's mentioned in here, death of a child. Uh, so there was, 
I don't hang out in graveyards as much as I'd like to, perhaps, but uh, I've been to them. Um, and in Europe, you've got a lot, you've got a lot more impressive graveyards than we have out here. Yeah. Um, but, uh, one of the things that's mentioned in this is early on is, uh, there were pillars that didn't support anything. Mm. Did you hear that part at the beginning of the book? Um, and there's a whole symbology of what things mean in graveyards. Yeah. So like, uh, if you've got an angel or if you've got a what shape of your tombstone mm. or, you know, all that stuff. Right. And one of them that stands out in my memory is that it's a, a pillar that is broken on the top. So it's, it's you know, the base of a column yeah. and it goes up and then it's broken and it's deliberately broken. Uh, you know, it wasn't like it's an old thing in the graveyard and it got broken. It's, it's yeah. designed to be a broken pillar. Okay. And apparently that's a, uh, a traditional symbol for, a life cut short. Yeah. So yeah. if you're, you know, a 14 year old and you get run over by a bus, your mom yeah. might, you know, have one of those put up for you. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's like these columns going up to support something yeah. and they can't do it. Right. And so it, in that sense, anytime somebody young dies, yeah. it's a tragedy, right? Because their life is cut short and they don't get to, fulfill the full possibilities of being a person throughout their life right yeah but it's i've been to a uh both my grandfather's funerals and uh and um grandmothers but usually you know sometimes they're memorials rather than funerals if if you get like my father has uh, he he was cremated right so there's no burial right um in that case but I've been to when it is a burial and there is literally a hole in the ground yeah. that your your grandfather's being put into a box and then they put that box in the ground and then everybody puts dirt. Yeah. Right? It's not one person burying, it's everybody's burying that person yeah. onto it. And that's it's it's literally like the idea between a line between life and death. There literally is one when you're saying we're covering this up. That's over. Yeah. It, there is some sort of sense of, um, you know, uh, you can hang out with somebody for a long time and they're not technically your husband or wife. Right. Yeah. Um, you can do that. And yet when you get it formalized, you would think, well, there's not really a difference between it. We are living, you know, still living together, blah, blah, blah. Right. But having those, uh, words spoken over the grave or, in the church or whatever it is, it can be affective. It can, it can, uh, move you emotionally or at least be stand out in your memory as not an everyday occurrence. But if you're like the, the guy who drives the truck that carries the dead body, mm. uh, it's gotta be, you know, you might be a little more philosophical, but, um, you're still, it's still your job. Uh, one of my friends who lives in Germany now works as a mortician. Oh, right. And, and, um, uh, that I just think that it's like, yep, it's a job needs to be done. It's, you're never going to go out of business. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, for sure. Uh, important work. People definitely do not want these dead bodies lying around. No. So we got to get them in the place Please, where they need to go. Somebody be an expert. What to do with them? That's exactly right. Mm. And, 
And there was a terrific uh, show on HBO years and years ago called um, Six Feet Under. Oh, yeah, I heard about this one, yeah. I've never seen it. Yeah, it it was very effective. It had um, a family that worked as, you know, morticians or undertakers. Mm. And every episode, I think, they had a a dead person um, being buried, and you see a bit of their life before they're dead. Right. And then, you know, the rest of the sort of the drama of the family yeah. is the rest of the show, but it, it was very thoughtful. And um, I'm a kind of fanatophile, you know, person who thinks of and loves death in a certain sense. Yeah. So I, I, this was a good book. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it was, it was certainly interesting. And especially looking at it with the eyes of a 19 year old. Hmm. It's impressive that anybody could write anything like that at that age. Yeah, for sure. It's not it's not like Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, but it's pretty damn good. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And um, one thing I stumbled across in Goodreads was that somebody wrote um, that they read the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Right. I never I never brought that up. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Um, it's fun. Well, Luke pointed out. Um, the um the comics to me um mm-hmm. so i read watchmen but that is that by him i don't even know but sandman surely is uh, neil gaiman no, no that's alan moore oh, right. yeah, yeah sandman is sandman. by him and there is a comic book adaptation of the graveyard book oh um, is it okay yeah uh i actually have the first volume of it but i haven't looked at it yet um yeah there there is a novel it's yeah it's a novel it's just a sort of ya novel uh the Graveyard Book is a, a very fun book, and I didn't know about this book when I read it years ago. Yeah, uh, I didn't know see, about. Do you see the similarities? There are some, um, but actually, what's what's funny about the Graveyard Book is it's actually not a takeoff of this as much as it's a takeoff of the Jungle Book. Oh, um, okay. Because in the Jungle Book, you've got a boy raised by animals, right? Yeah. Uh, in the graveyard book, you've got a, a boy raised by ghosts. Right. Okay. And, uh, one of the nice things about the graveyard book is, uh, y- you know, it starts really scary because there's a serial killer, kills a family. Um, and it's a, it's a book for kids, right? Is Love it? it. Ooh. Uh, yeah, it's a kid's book. Uh, but, you know, you can be an adult and enjoy it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this baby toddler wanders out of the house while the family's being murdered. <laughs> and, uh, wanders into the graveyard, uh, you know, down the street and never comes out until uh, maybe the end of the book. I can't even remember the end of the book. But he lives in the grave. He's raised by ghosts in the graveyard. But that, and, that doesn't um, sound like, you know, like in The Raven, he actually mm-hmm. was murdered too. <laughs> and then his ghost was living with ghosts on the graveyard. <laughs> You're right. Well, but he wasn't a baby. He was never a baby. One of the things that, you know, when... You know, like in Tarzan as well, yeah. as the great, uh, right? Is that when you're raised by animals, you learn their language, you learn their skills, right? Yeah. So t- Tarzan is t- is as strong as a I don't know orangutan and yeah or <laughs> gorilla or whatever, and and he can talk to Tantor the elephant and Sheba the lion or whatever the names of all the animals are. And then the same in the Jungle Book, the boy has you know the skills of all the animals in the jungle yeah. who are his friends and such. So in the graveyard book, uh, the boy, his name is uh, Nobody Owens. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah. And they call him Bod, which is funny because nobody and Bod are, you know, yeah. kind of the opposite. But the ghosts have all sorts of skills, like they can pass through walls, right? Are these and skills? They teach I thought that just like when you're a ghost, that's just your... Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> but nobody Owens gets taught these skills, so he can pass through walls. Right? Sweet. Yeah, it's it's a fun book, and um, there there's illustrations in it, but um, in the first version I, I read... Uh, the illustrations are subtle, yeah, and that's important for the plot because uh, some of the characters are, uh, you know, like everybody is something in the graveyard. Why is this guy living? There? There's a character who's kind of like our um, uh, night watchman, yeah. right? Who ends up sort of babysitting, yeah. And then there's another lady who comes in when he's out of he's outside the graveyard. He like goes to the store and buys literal food for the boy, right? Because the boy can't eat like ghosts. He needs real food and water. Yeah. So he buys some stuff at the store. And and yet he never seems to eat himself. So okay. And he has a body. He can't pass through walls, right? So what kind of monster is he, right? They're all different kinds of monsters. Yeah. And and one of them has an accent that's very Eastern European. And you say, aha, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's nice. And I think in the comic book version, it might be a little less subtle yeah. than it is in the in the original paper book. Yeah. That's funny because Jenny from Reading Envy, she she writes that mm -hmm. um she did the first read as an audiobook and I think Yep. Uh I'm not sure but you kind of need some of the illustration maybe. It's kind of like Well, it's, bit... uh, it's uh, the audiobook's pretty terrific too. Neil Gaiman uh I think read the audiobook version. Oh, okay. And when he does the different characters, he's careful to give you the sort of accent they would have. Right. Right. Yeah. Which helps you identify. And so when I read it originally, I read it with a class full of my students uh, when the book came out. Yeah. And, uh, and then every character was a different student. Uh, well, no, I, uh, what happened was we're, as we're reading chapters, we would like post them and put it, we, we got like a, uh, we tweeted, um, uh, Neil Gaiman and we got a poster. Oh, sweet! It was pretty, yeah, all signed and stuff. And then that really got the kids engaged. In it. And when they realized what kind of monsters all the different characters are, mm. they're like, that that was fun for them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it is a great book for kids, but um, you can enjoy it as an adult as well. I'm a, I'm a look into it and see if I can yeah, find it's it. Cute. Yeah. If you've uh, read Coraline or seen the movie, it's kind of similar to that. No, I haven't seen it, but it's kind of reminding me a bit of uh, uh, what's the name Tim Tim Burton. Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very Tim Burtony. Yep. Yeah. Thanatophilic, yeah. right? Yeah. Spending time thinking about death. Yeah. Yum yum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I I have I think in for some people maybe a little bit of a weird thinking of death that I yep. I think more of the happy things that happened to that person while they were living. Yeah. And uh, well, it's also to make you not fear it. Right. That's why yeah, I, I'm sort of interested. Of I'm not really afraid of death. And I think it's because I spend so much time thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the points when I sometimes think about us and the universe and and death and us being what are we, you know, these kind mm -hmm. of thoughts yep. that sometimes it's a bit frightening. But it also, is. if you're dead, in my opinion, you, you just 
dead. You're just particles. You don't, you yep. don't, you don't know. So You're gone. Yeah, you don't care. It's exactly like before you were born. Yeah, exactly. You can't remember. <laughs> there was no before. That's right. So um, and there will be no after. Yeah. So it would be weird, but also yeah. we are all just living in our heads, right? I mean, that's right. We are. We can't get out of our head. I don't think. I don't think the 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 proposition for how death works in in uh, a fine and private place is, is actually legit, but it's yeah. it's a fine book. It is. It is very very much a fine and private place you can go to. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.